Nashville is a very, very powerful city when it comes to healthcare, very powerful. And that touches a variety of things. It touches care delivery, it touches employment, it touches wealth creation. And in all of those areas, there are significant disparities, specifically for black people. And what I wanted to do was just frame up that these things were likely systemic from 50 plus years ago when, when Nashville's healthcare industry was started. That's Marcus Whitney, entrepreneur and author of Create and Orchestrate, talking about a piece he wrote calling up for Nashville's healthcare leaders to take action against systemic racism and inequity in the industry. In this episode, Marcus, who recently joined Launch Tennessee Board of Directors, explains why he decided to speak out about the disparities in the healthcare industry. And he describes some of the work he's doing to address those issues by investing in black founders. My name's Clark Buckner, and welcome to season four of Disrupt the Continuum, Launch Tennessee's podcast powered by Pinnacle Financial Partners. This show is dedicated to entrepreneurs, investors, and ecosystem builders. This season, we'll be bringing you behind-the-scene interviews with attendees and guest speakers from last year's 3686 Festival, which, for the first time, went completely virtual. The new, fully interactive format united a worldwide audience to celebrate community, culture, and connection with the brightest minds across multiple industries. And some exciting news. Another 3686 Festival is set to return later this summer. So be sure to watch this space for all the latest info coming soon, including the official launch dates, speakers, networking opportunities you won't want to miss. Plus, find out when and how you can register to attend. Before we get back to our conversation with Marcus, we want to thank this season's sponsor, Pinnacle Financial Partners. They pride themselves on being much more than just another bank. They offer their clients long-term partnerships for growing their businesses. Learn more at pnfp.com. Now, let's jump in. Hi, my name is Marcus Whitney. I represent a couple of companies, Jumpstart Health Investors, my personal company, Creative Power, and I was part of two sessions with 3686, one reflecting on Nashville healthcare industry's relationship when it comes to inclusion, and also a session about my book, Create and Orchestrate. Marcus, I'm so excited to spend a few minutes with you. So many good things that we're going to be able to cover. And not one, but two sessions you were a speaker at, at 3686. You've had the new book come out. I know that's been a labor of love. And it is out. It's climbed the charts in several categories and entrepreneurship, especially. So, so many good things. So, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Clark. All right. Let's start off before we jump into your sessions at 3686 some of your most recent projects i just want to do a quick little overview of you and and your story and i know all this is in the book we're definitely going to be plugging all of that throughout this but you know part of your journey of what you've talked about is coming to nashville starting by reinventing yourself started waiting tables you start coding you join a software company early company in Nashville called Emma, um, key early employee and voice there. Fast forwarding Emma goes, it's, you know, it's a big success in Nashville. And you've had several of your other of your own ventures. And zooming ahead to where you're at today, you have so many hats 
from the VC space to Nashville's one of its newest sports additions with a soccer club. So when you meet someone and you try to give them a quick overview, it's tough on all the things you're doing. But what's the the main overview of Marcus Whitney that you would want someone in this 3686 universe to know about you? Uh, that I'm an entrepreneur. That is the uh, single identity that works across everything I'm doing today is that I'm an entrepreneur. Um, if I were to throw an adjective in there, I'd say I'm a creative entrepreneur um, because I just continually find myself on the creative side of things, on the uh, forming and storming and launching side of things. Um, not so much on the uh, operationalizing side of things. Uh, mm -hmm. That's been just a very consistent part of my my life. And I like it that way. I'm very comfortable with that. Um, so yeah, and I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. In your book, Create and Orchestrate, you talk about entrepreneurship is the great equalizer and entrepreneurship's this era's most effective path to accessing to a sustainable end. And when you just have that first title of being an entrepreneur and entrepreneurship, how has your experience with that and your definition of that changed over the years? And do you still believe the same things you believe when you think about that today? I absolutely believe it. Um, I think that the reason why entrepreneurship is the great equalizer is because the market only really cares about value at the end of the day. Uh, other systems put all sorts of other uh, sort of weird, unnatural, often unnecessary barriers in place things around credentials, things around quote unquote culture fit um, in order to achieve a level of success. Compliance is often, you know, sort of a big one. And not to say that the market doesn't require some form of compliance in terms of, you know, filing taxes and regulatory things of that nature. But in terms of bringing value to the market at the end of the day, the consumer only really cares about the value that you are providing and about it being the best value for their dollar. And so I think in that respect, you're not dealing with the things that many of the institutions uh, outside of the, the free market uh, have in place that just hold people back. And so, yes, entrepreneurship is the, is the equalizer. Um, I, I'm a college dropout and the things that I've been able to achieve really would only be possible in entrepreneurship. They wouldn't be possible in the world of academia. They wouldn't really be possible in the world of, of corporate America. Um, you know, I think they are possible in the world of artists, but ultimately that's, that falls in the realm of entrepreneurship. So yeah, uh, that's, that's really my reason for, um, for, for starting the book with that assertion. The market only cares about value at the end of the day. So, so many ways you could create value why healthcare why i'm sure you get asked this a lot because there's there's so many things that you could do how did you find yourself where you're at now and, and sticking to that yeah initially it was it was out of necessity when my partner vic and i arrived at the five-year anniversary of the first iteration of jumpstart foundry which was a tech accelerator very much in the style of like tech stars operating out of the nashville entrepreneur center we realized that we really couldn't keep doing what we were doing. When we started in 2009, 2010, we were maybe one of 100 tech accelerators in the whole country. 
By the time 2014 hit, there were thousands, probably 4,000 accelerators in the United States. And uh, our deal flow had dropped dramatically. We hadn't really changed our value proposition. And so we would just were not getting the same quality of, of companies. And also, to be fair, our ability to help those companies be successful hadn't really improved over the course of the, the, the four or five years, in, a, in I would say, in a material, meaningful way. And so we, we felt like we understood a lot about early stage companies and early stage investing, but we needed to evolve. And one of the things that we were constrained by and we needed to figure out how to turn that constraint into a strength was geography. We were in Nashville. And if you're in Nashville in 2014, you know, as much as I think the city aspired to be a big tech uh, booming city, it hadn't arrived yet. And so we needed to pick an industry where we had real differentiated strength. And without a doubt, there were only two industries, I think, worth worth selecting, healthcare and music. Healthcare was the bigger of the two. And uh, and so that's where we went. You know, we went into healthcare. So that was that was why initially, I think over the course of the last six years that I've been immersed in healthcare, I've come to understand what most of the com- of the country understands at this point in 2020 is healthcare is like food and like water and like energy and like clean air. It is it is an absolute essential that we have to have in, in, in this country in order for us to have any quality of life, in order for our economy to function. And so it is largely recession proof. It is one of the most important things you can work on in terms of the impact that it has to individuals' lives. It's the largest segment of the US economy by GDP. So it hovers in and around 18 to 19%. And it's also really the last industry to hold off disruption. Uh, it has not been meaningfully disrupted by technology players in the last 20, 25 years. And so there's a ton of opportunity. There's a ton of leverage here in Nashville with the strength of this uh, industry cluster really created initially by HCA. But now, you know, you, you've got probably a thousand companies between pure healthcare companies and then the professional services companies that support them. Very, very significant economic impact to this city and region, but one of the largest employers by an industry cluster of the country. So I think healthcare is a very meaningful industry for, for us to be in and also uh, potentially if we execute well, very lucrative. Nashville in 2014. Is that when you make that pivot? I remember those days. It's been a while ago, but when was that year? Is that the year when Jumpstart becomes the focused area around healthcare? Yes. Yes. At the Investor's Day, it would have been August or September of 2014. Investor's Day. Yeah. Right. It was at the uh, Skirmahorn uh, Symphony Center where I got on, on stage and said we were going 100% healthcare and we were going to start investing 150 k per company, which was met to a variety of of different responses. Uh, I think a bunch of people were really upset that we went 100% healthcare because we were one of the games in town that was not 100% healthcare, quite frankly, right. from the perspective at that time. And so the fact that we sort of went that direction, I think, let a lot of people down. But ultimately, it has proved to be you know, the most important decision we've ever made as a company in terms of growing our value to the market. Yeah, it might have been disappointing, maybe, because there are some really cool companies that weren't healthcare that you invested in and still have in your portfolio, but I guess now they're more the legacy-type companies you've had. That's right. But, yeah, the healthcare focus. And six years later, and especially right now, we're deep in a global pandemic. There's social unrest. 
There's so many things, I think, where the system is revealing its fractured cracks all around the country, all around the world, and, and healthcare is at at a different viewpoint now. And has, how has that changed your perspective on the work you're doing as a VC in healthcare specifically? Uh, drastically. Um, you know, I think we always knew that something, some event was going to come and going to really, really shake up healthcare. Uh, I, I will admit we didn't think it was going to be a pandemic. <laughs> right. We were more thinking about disruption coming from the, the tech titans who were continuing to inch their way towards the industry, particularly Amazon and, and Google. But no, we, we always knew something was going to come. This was bigger than what we thought and has been disruptive in ways we couldn't have really predicted. But we what we did understand was just how central the healthcare system was to everything going on in America. And I think that's been on full display for us all this year. Uh, I think also, you know, the racial inequity storyline of 2020, that that isn't just catalyzed by the murders of George Floyd, mm -hmm. Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Aubrey, but also by the disproportionate rate of death that black and brown people have suffered from COVID-19. Uh, black people basically dying twice as often as white people from COVID-19. Um, I think, you know, those two things have really... Uh, changed my personal perspective because you know for any of your listeners who've never seen me before i'm i'm black and i'm in this healthcare venture world and it is a very white world i'm essentially the only black healthcare venture capitalist in nashville and for the last six years I, i've pretty much been heads down not that i have been ignoring that fact but i've been more honing my craft and making sure i was actually good at this work and so you know, not really spending a lot of time focusing on the disparities in terms of representation in the space. But this, I think, forced everyone to look at everything that was going on around them, all the systems that they were in, that they participate in, that because they didn't use their voice, they were complicit in. And I think uh, I was no exception to that. So uh, that led to me penning a pretty pivotal piece for me anyway, uh, really before Significant, my yes yeah, it was yeah. A, an essay it was and when you say you're the only black man in this that's out of 16 vc firms that's over 120 professionals yeah. uh, that's a number I, I believe i heard you say right so yeah yeah and we're in we're in nashville this is like the healthcare mecca yeah and right. yeah so you pen this piece and it's titled calling up to nashville's healthcare leaders Yep. So what were some of the main points that you wanted to convey with this? Well, I, you know, I wanted to point out for people who were uninitiated like me, but, you know, I, in 2014, I did not understand how significant Nashville's healthcare industry was. Right. Um, and now I do. And so I wanted to first help people to understand that Nashville is a very, very powerful city when it comes to healthcare, very powerful. And that touches a variety of things. It touches care delivery, it touches employment, it touches wealth creation. And in all of those areas, there are significant disparities, specifically for black people. And what I wanted to do was just frame up that these things were likely systemic from 50 plus years ago when, when Nashville's healthcare industry was started. And I just 
highlighted the fact that HCA was founded in 1968. And that also happens to be the same year that Martin Luther King was assassinated three hours from Nashville in Memphis, Tennessee. And so just trying to put those two chronological data points in people's heads so they can try to frame up for themselves that it would be basically impossible for three black men to have come together in the same way that Thomas Frist Sr., Thomas Frist Jr., and Jack Massey came together to form HCA. Like that would that would have been basically impossible at that time. And so if you then fast forward 50 years and you now look at the makeup of the Healthcare Council Board, you look at the makeup of the uh, executive teams of the companies that are represented on that board, if you look at the venture capital community, um, you will see significant exclusion of Black people in positions of leadership. Um, you know, I just started with the Healthcare Council Board, where there are 30 people and one Black person. And, um, you know, Black people make up almost 30% of the population of Metro Nashville and almost 20% of the population of the United States. And so when you've got such a massive disparity, you start to sort of connect the dots between this era in which Nashville's healthcare industry was formed and the, the massive disparities that we have today and, and how that, that's a big problem. And, and it's, a, it's a responsibility and it's also an opportunity for today's leaders, many of which, you know, many, many of Nashville healthcare leaders Today, look, most of them are white men, but they're in like their 50s, right? And what that means is they were born when all that was happening, right? It's not like they were in college or, you know, adults at that sort of stage of, of racism in America. So many of them are, quite frankly, simply uneducated and unaware and just don't understand. And I was, I wrote the essay in a way not to not to shame them, but to point out this is happening. You are the ones in these positions of power. And this is a real opportunity for you to stand up in this moment and create a significant legacy for yourself, for these companies and for Nashville to say that just because, you know, Nashville's healthcare industry was formed in this time of clear, clear racism, it doesn't have to continue that legacy and it will pay attention to the systemic ways in which racism has proliferated throughout the industry and it will do things to end it. Mm -hmm. At 3686, you, your session, so this comes out maybe what, two couple of months before the yeah. festival? Yeah, right? yeah, about two months. And so you're on the docket, you're, and I was able to listen in on this the other day and it's you and Richard Manson, is that right? That's right. And you ask him basically, I'm, I hope I get this right, but it's something along the lines of help me understand how we have one of the top five African-American medical institutions in the country. And that's around 20% of all African-American doctors are graduating from Meharry Medical College. So you that's have right. this happening right here, but it's in the same town with such a divide in the lack of representation. And also you talk about pipeline and coming out of that school and, and not making it into the rest of the of this healthcare community. And and your guest, Richard Manson, responds with, there is no understanding of that. You can't rationalize it. Did that surprise you at all? Did 
you know, yeah. what, what now? What, you know, what, <laughs> like, where do we find ourselves now? Where do you find yourself now? Uh, no, it didn't surprise me. And that was, you know, that's why I wanted to have Richard there. So I can write about, I can write about these data points from the 1960s, but I was born in 1975 and I only moved to Nashville 20 years ago. So it was important for me to have Richard there because Richard moved to Nashville to attend Fisk in 1967. So he was here. He was here for the very important civil rights movement in Nashville. He, you know, he was here around John Lewis and he talks about the variety of, of leaders of the civil rights movement that were coming in and out of Nashville, particularly because of Fisk and because of the intellectual, you know, sort of brain trust that was being formed there around equality for black people in America. And having him there to me was an important validator of the issue, right? Um, it's one thing for me to say it and for people to say, yeah, but what does is, what is Marcus know? He's only been here 20 years. He wasn't even around back then. It's an entirely different thing when, you know, I have Richard who not just was here then, but is still here today and, you know, is a, is a founding partner of arguably the the biggest black law firm in Nashville is chairman of, you know, Citizens Bank, Black Bank in Nashville, right? You know, and also president of a successful healthcare company, right? He's doing all three of those things. And so I thought having him, first of all, you know, I think there's so many people who didn't even know who Richard was. And that's a damn shame. He's so important in so many ways. And and so I was happy to be able to have this this interview and this conversation with him. He's a mentor of mine, but he is an unbelievable fountain of wisdom and experience. And he's also, you know, a kind and reasonable person. And he's not here to try to shame anybody, but he's also not here to pacify anybody, right? And I think that was that was the importance of of having him participate in 3686 and 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 to help help shape this conversation. And you shared with him and among others your essay before you published it, right? I did. Yes. Any feedback did you get before you released it? What was it? Were they saying definitely like this needs to be said? Was they give you feedback? I don't know. Like what? Because this is a. I feel like I can't imagine being in that position where you're. You've been in the space, and I believe you've you've talked about. You know, you you're an outsider looking in to the privilege and who's in these roles and to be able to, and, and a, in the way you say calling up, all right, you're, it's, it's an, you're not trying to shame, as you said, but what was going through your mind before saying that? Because I mean, that, I don't know. I feel like there's a risk in that, right? Yeah, for sure. You know, there was a, there was a risk in it, but uh, you know, look, I was, I think I was compelled by the risk of not doing it. It really sort of hit me on it, it was it was it was a really interesting experience, Clark. Uh, Sunday morning, you know, I published a piece on Monday and Sunday morning I woke up and I normally would write my weekly newsletter on Sundays. You know, I didn't sort of write it beforehand. And usually on Sunday, like whatever sort of on my mind is is where the newsletter is going to go. And I woke up and I was just like. I don't remember seeing anything from the Nashville Healthcare Council about everything that's going on in America right now. And so I so I searched my inbox, you know, looking for some message about it. I didn't see anything. And so then I I reached out to a friend at the council just to kind of hear, hey, has anything happened yet? And that friend said, yeah, you know, 
we're working on it. So I knew I, I knew that the council was working on a message. But by that point, I mean, it a long time had passed, you know, and I just thought it, it, this is this is just way too slow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's it's too slow. And it just made me think about who was in the room and, and who had the power to decide what needed to be said and how quickly it needed to be said. And it, it just it was just uh, it felt emblematic of the overall problem. And that's when I realized, wow, you know, I am in this very, very unique position where I'm not actually employed by the industry in any real way, but I understand it very well. And more than that, I, I know the people who run it. I know many of the people. I don't know all of them, but I know many of the people who run it. And that just put me in this really weird position where I just went from, it's interesting that the Nashville Healthcare Council didn't say anything yet. They did ultimately, but they didn't say anything yet to, I have to say something. It was pretty swift. And then I just went about writing and it was, yeah, it was, it was very, uh, you know, honestly, it was, it was a little nerve wracking because I have been here for 20 years and I've never, I mean, I've spoken at like the Nashville Black Chamber of Commerce and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's not that I've necessarily avoided the issue of race. It is more that I have always focused on execution and entrepreneurship, always being honest about the reality of race, but never, never making it the 100% focal point of any piece that I've ever done. Like if you read my book, you're not going to really see race play a prominent role in the book. You know, if you look back, I've got a ton of content online. I've done a TED talk. You just, it's just not something you're going to see be a prominent cornerstone of like my position. Right. But this moment is different. You know what I mean? And, and, I, and I think part of the reason why I haven't done that in the past is because I knew, I knew that if I brought it up, I would be discounted for it. Like, you know what I mean? It, like it actually wouldn't have helped me or it wouldn't have served me. And so I'm about being effective and being successful, not about saying things for the sake of saying things. And I just never felt that the timing or the space was right, where if I said something, it would be received as anything but me pulling the race card. And so I've, I've just I've just avoided it. But I think that actually made it that much more impactful when I did say something about it, because people know this is not, you know, if I'm saying something about it, it's probably something to it. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, it was a little bit nerve wracking to put it out. But, you know, the response to it was not universally great. You know, there were people who were upset about it. And, you know, I got some nasty grams and things like that. And, you know, it, you know, that is what it is. But for the most part, there was a lot of appreciation for me saying what needed to be said. And, you know, sometimes you look in the mirror and you realize you're the only person who can say something in a particular way that's going to hit. So you, you have a choice, you know, do you do it or not do it? So what now? What, what, what's the expectation? What's the anticipation? And what are you hoping will happen of these next months and these next years? Um, I think that over the next months and years, um, I am going to be dedicating myself to this particular issue in a way that I didn't expect to. So this this was the beginning of a conversation and also an exploration for me, specifically around healthcare venture capital. I'm not a you know again I'm a college dropout. I don't I don't know healthcare administration. I don't know the business. So there were a lot of things that. I pointed out that I literally cannot do anything about, you know, executive leadership, talking about board positions and 
and the C-suite of these various, you know, hospital operators and physician groups and behavioral health centers and uh, ambulatory surgical centers and things like that. There's nothing I can really do except for ask them to really take a good look in the mirror and and say whether or not they're doing enough there. That, that's that's about what I can do to be effective because I'm not actually in that space. But where I am is I am in the healthcare venture capital space. And, you know, that space is just as bad, if not worse, quite frankly. It, it might be worse. It might be worse. Uh, my, my early indications are that it's probably worse. And so that is the space I absolutely can do something about. I am a co-founder and board member and executive team member of a healthcare venture capital platform that's been operating for six years and has you know, almost $50 million under management and over 100 portfolio companies and some exits under our belt and uh, a pretty good brand and a great network. And we understand what we're doing. And even in our portfolio, we we could be doing more uh, around investing in, in black founders. And I'll tell you something interesting. Uh, we probably have out, outsized positive results in terms of our investments in black founders. Two of our exits uh, have happened as a result of companies with black co-founders. I so, didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think that um, there's, there's space there. And so what I have begun the process, we, as you said, you know, by the time this comes out, sort of what's going on, I, I, I can only really reasonably talk about what I'm doing right at this moment. And then, you know, we'll see where, where it all maps when, when this is actually published. But uh, I've started the process of establishing what I believe, and I'm, I'm continuing to do research on, but what I believe is the first black healthcare venture fund in America. Um, and that means that it will have Black general partners managing the fund, and it will exclusively invest in companies that are in the healthcare space that have black founders and black leadership. They don't have to be black majority owned, because um, I think that's going to be too hard on the deal flow side of things. But I am seeking to invest in great black founders, and uh, you know where they have meaningful representation on the cap table, and that and they're part of the executive team. So I'm in the process of doing that. Uh, it's going to launch on top of the Jumpstart platform. So it doesn't mean I'm I'm leaving my company to do it. Um, I'm doing it with the support of my company, with the support of my you know my business partner Vic Gatto, and um, it's uh, it's it's pretty exciting. That is really exciting. Congrats. Where do you, so when this comes out, where you know, or even in a couple of years from now, as you're thinking about what you want the ultimate why to be and the ultimate outcome. What what does success look like for you as you continue with Jumpstart, right? But also this new fund, especially this new fund, what what do the success metrics look like for you? What's what's really motivating you? There's a lot of things pulling on your heart right now, I know, with all the things you're involved in, but for this especially, what are you most excited about? Um, I mean, I, I'm I'm pretty focused on this right now. It's it's a, it's a pretty big endeavor and I wasn't planning on doing it. Um, but once I started the conversation and started to then do due diligence and do some studies, uh, the the exclusion is pretty significant, pretty significant. And so I felt strongly that somebody needed to do something focused. And what's great about a fund is that it's actionable and it can happen quickly. And while it is to some degree transactional insofar as, you know, you're investing money and, okay, so you're putting money in a fund, the outcome can be transformational. The success of, of a couple of 
really, really great companies with black leadership can can do incredible things. Just look at what HCA has done. And so uh, it has the potential to be transformational. It has the potential to develop into a true institution that continues beyond the first fund. Um, the success is always going to be returns for investors. Like it's a fund, right? And so uh, I've I've already defined who we're going to invest in. And, and as long as I'm able to raise the fund, then that will happen. I will invest in companies with black founders in the healthcare space. And so to me, that's not actually the success metric. The success metric is, uh, can we get, can we get outsized returns? Can we, can we be a better place for investors to put their, their money than the average fund? That's the, that's the ultimate question. Um, and that's, that's what I'm shooting for. Fantastic. And, I am excited to follow along with that and all the things that you're doing. One thing I think kind of nice to end on is you always, you, you sign off on your emails, uh, something along the lines of, I believe in you. And I want to maybe wrap up our conversation here and just that belief that you, you have in others and how you're inspired by others. And, you know, I would love to just kind of end with with why you feel that way and why you you believe why you feel that as a way to keep you motivated and I love it so let's end with that what does that mean to you and how can someone follow along with uh, the newsletter with all the things that you're doing yeah Clark I look I want to live in the best possible world I can live in and I can't do that by myself right and I know that people rise to the occasion when they're encouraged as opposed to sort of shamed. And so the energy I want to put out into the world is encouraging energy. You know, we have a lot of discouraging stuff that comes across through these, through this digital landscape and, you know, just a little bit of positivity doesn't hurt. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So it's the easiest thing in the world for me to do to just sign off my emails by saying, I believe in you, but I hope, you know, it's great that you noticed it and that you, you brought it up. Um, it's, it's an easy thing to do, but hopefully it's meaningful and it helps people to feel like somebody does believe in them and, and therefore they can go out and do their part to make the world a better place for me to live in. There's a little bit of selfishness to it. You know what I mean? Like I want people to be their best self out here. That's good. How can someone subscribe and and follow along? MarcusWhitney.com. Just Google, just Google Marcus Whitney. You're, you're everywhere. It's easy. MarcusWhitney.com. Simple. Go there, (laughs) subscribe. You're in. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Disrupt the Continuum, a Launch Tennessee podcast where Tennessee's entrepreneurs, investors, and ecosystem builders share their stories. Remember to check back often for updates on this summer's 3686 Festival including when and how to register. Launch Tennessee is a public-private partnership with this simple vision, make Tennessee the most startup-friendly state in the nation. With a statewide network of partners across industries like healthcare, life science, energy, music, and more, Launch Tennessee provides the resources and connectivity to drive Tennessee's innovation economy. To follow along our journey, visit launchtn.org podcast. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned as we'll be back next week to continue the conversation with another episode of Disrupt the Continuum.